Hi there. You're listening to F&B Soundbites, a podcast where we cover hot topics, trends and challenges of interest to professionals in the engine room behind the food and beverage industry. I'm your host, Hamish McCook. Today, we're joined by Matt Rayburn. Matt is a leading climate change strategist with 13 years of experience in Aotearoa, New Zealand and the US. He's worked with the Ministry for Environment in New Zealand and EY, and he was also the lead environmental counsel for the US Postal Service in Washington, DC. So Matt recently joined Becker in our sustainability advisory team, and he's got some really interesting insights on the TCFD, the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. So welcome, Matt. Hey, Hamish. Good to be here. Uh, great to have you along as well, Matt. Hey, and just as a bit of an introduction for me, I guess, and perhaps for our audience, mate, what was your motivation for coming to NZ and, and ultimately for joining Becker? Yeah, so I, I came to New Zealand from Portland, Oregon, was my last stop in the US before I moved here. Um, and I really just came here for my kid. Thought that New Zealand would provide a great opportunity and place for her to grow up. And in the four and a half years I've been here with COVID being the best example, that has turned out to have been a good risk assessment and action on my part to move my family here. And it's kind of ties in with the kind of work that I do at Becca, which is to look at climate change risks, look at different scenarios and help clients to understand how best to deal with their climate change risks and opportunities to have the best outcomes for themselves, which started in my time at the Postal Service. Uh, when I was there, we implemented a climate change adaptation strategy for the first time, and that followed a giant hurricane superstorm, uh, Superstorm Sandy, which hit New York and was massively disruptive to our business. This was in 2012, kind of midpoint of the Obama administration. And we, you know, all of our operations were disrupted in ways that you might not have initially thought of, like, you know, people couldn't get to work even at our facilities that were still operating because they couldn't get to petrol stations to fill up their cars to get to work. Started to identify what some of the vulnerabilities are that we hadn't even thought about. And we really took those lessons to heart when I was at the Postal Service. And just a few years later, when Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico, which is a U.S. territory, which the Postal Service operates in, even when only 15% of the power had been restored to the island a month later, 99 of Puerto Rico's uh, 120 post offices were already delivering mail and packages, which included paychecks, prescription medicines. So, you know, the reason that I tell that anecdote is because it's evidence that this thing can actually be managed, that risks can be addressed. You can adapt to climate change. You can decarbonize. It's all going to be challenging, but there are real opportunities to organizations, as the Postal Service showed, to really trying to tackle it early and get ahead of it. Quite right, actually, Matt. So my feel at the moment is that a lot of companies are still grappling with this thing that's so far in the future that they haven't really gone to the right level of detail to understand the possible implications. But in your case, it sounds like you had a really great case study of doing that and seeing some great results. Matt, I want to get on to the topic of the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, TCFD, lovely acronym. Can you explain for our listeners what this is? Yeah, I, I definitely can. So the most prominent name attached to this is Michael Bloomberg, former New York mayor, billionaire, uh, occasional presidential candidate. And he chaired this organization called the Financial Stability Board. And their remit was to address the fact that companies don't do a terribly good job of considering and 
quantifying and costing out their financial risks and opportunities from climate change. Climate change is perceived as being something that's in the too hard bucket. There's too much uncertainty. And so a lot of companies just skip over it. And not just companies, but other organizations, governments. It's really seen as too challenging because of the uncertainty in it. But when you actually start to think about it and look at it and organize the risks as the Financial Stability Board attempted to do with this TCFD framework, this organization that put it out, the Financial Stability Board, developed something called the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, which again, Michael Bloomberg chaired. And they put out this framework for how to organize your risks from a financial perspective on your risk from the transition to a low emissions economy, eventually a a net zero emissions economy, which every uh, government in the world has agreed to through the Paris Agreement. And in New Zealand, we have ratified 2030 and 2050 targets into law as well. And to also address risks from those kinds of physical impacts like Superstorm Sandy and Hurricane Maria in New York, or could be, you know, obviously bushfires in Australia have been a big one lately, drought, those kinds of things. How does that start to impact you financially? And then what are you doing to address those risks? How are you mitigating the risks? Are you setting aside reserves or do you have sufficient insurance? Are you taking actions to ensure that your operations aren't any more disrupted than they otherwise would be? And COVID-19 gave us a very good preview of what's coming with climate change, because it is going to be that, that massive disruption. And it can be disruption that is used in a way that allows organizations to pursue their opportunities. And I think in food and beverage, there's a lot of opportunities to do things more efficiently, more sustainably, and you know, in some cases, depending on which product, you know, more profitably. And then to be able to you know, really think about what kind of business you want to have going into the future instead of kind of just focusing on short-term financial returns. So the TCFD tries to address all of those very complicated challenges by at least helping to categorize and organize and provide a framework for how you disclose those in a way that will inform your investors. And then the investors, once better informed, can decide you know, which organizations are they going to be investing in based on how well or how not well they're dealing with their potential risks and opportunities that climate change poses. Mm. So you talk about investors, but it's also insurance and asset owners, asset managers, banks as well, providing loans, who are actually the recipients of this information, aren't they? They're, They're the ones most interested in the manner in which you understood and managed these risks and opportunities. So that that plays out in terms of whether you can actually get debt, whether you can actually get investors for your business as well. So it's quite foundational, really. That's particularly relevant to the Australian context, too. I mean, in New Zealand, we were the first country to decide to mandate this TCFD reporting across nearly all of our financial system. So that's all New Zealand banks, insurers, and every company listed on the New Zealand Stock Exchange, as well Mm. as asset managers and fund managers and our crown financial institutions. They're all going to have to start reporting and they're going to have to start doing it in the next financial year. And the reason that we had to really mandate it in New Zealand is because unlike in Australia and the US and the EU and the UK and Japan, there wasn't as much of a voluntary uptake of this kind of reporting. But as far as the quality of reporting, Australian companies, and it's, you know, some are doing a better job than others, but there are more Australian companies as a percentage of their economy 
relative to New Zealand that have already been starting this voluntary reporting, even in the absence of a mandate in Australia. And that's also true in the UK, although the UK is also through the Bank of England just announced that they're going to mandate it across their system as well. And at the most recent G7 meeting, all of the finance ministers for those countries announced that they would be mandating it as well. So the mandatory regime is coming. And even if you're one way or another not captured by a mandatory regime, this is where all financial risk reporting for climate change is going. So if you deal with a bank, if you deal with an insurer, if you deal with partners that are also having to report this kind of information, they're going to be looking to your organization to also provide the risk information to them so that they can make decisions about their climate change risks. And you know, banks will be making decisions and insurers will be making decisions about whether or not they want to uh, provide mortgages to or insure pieces of property that are particularly vulnerable to physical impacts from climate change. So if it's in an area that has you know, storm surge risk and sea level rise, or if it has a high you know, bushfire risk, or if it's in a part of a country like, you know, say, maybe parts of Western Australia, where as coal mining starts to be phased out, whether or not you know, some of those areas are going to be quite as economically resilient to those kinds of major economic changes, all that's going to start to go into a play. So even if you're not actually required to do it as companies in New Zealand will be required to do, the entire global financial system is moving in this direction. And so it's going to be capturing everybody. And in a couple of years, it's just going to be widely accepted standard practice globally. Yeah, it's coming and it's going to be impactful. There's the negative why around if you don't, there'll be some implications, but also I think you pointed out some positive reasons why as well. Can you tell us a bit more about the benefits companies can get by actually getting on the front foot? You know, the Postal Service, that's like one example that I like to show that like they actually figured out kind of the hard way with Superstorm Sandy, like what some of their vulnerabilities were, and then they were more prepared for it when the next major hurricane affecting one of their markets happens. So the opportunities to really start to, as much as one can, future-proof your business. So what I mostly focused on when I was at the New Zealand Ministry for the Environment was developing corporate guidance on climate scenario analysis. And this climate scenario analysis bit is kind of the key components of TCFD reporting. The TCFD framework requires every organization that reports under it to look at different climate change scenarios and test the resilience of their business's strategy to each of those scenarios. And at least one of those has to be tied to the level of warming that everybody has agreed to in the Paris Agreement, which is two degrees above uh, pre-industrial temperatures. So you have to say, you know, if we are on a two degree pathway, if we're able to cap global climate change at two degrees of warming, what does that mean for my business? And you can also look at what if I have a high physical impact scenario, if it's a more of a hothouse situation where we're looking at three degrees of global warming, potentially in the next couple of decades, what is that going to mean for my business? And also the pathway of how we get to even a successful two degree outcome is really important. They, they tend to call these orderly and disorderly scenarios. I like to think of them more as like planned disruption and unplanned disruption. And if you're looking at an orderly or more planned disruption where you are having a clear trajectory to getting to that two degree level and having emissions at that two degree level globally and with each respective country by about 2050, what kind of a lift is that for your business? Um, is it more mm -hmm. of a lift? And it generally will be if we 
don't do a very good job of mitigating our emissions in this next decade and then have to really catch up over the subsequent two decades. I mean, just about all economic modeling for that will show that it's less efficient, more expensive. So there's different ways to do it. But when you start to look at how your strategy as a business responds to those different scenarios, and particularly at the extremes, if it's one of those high warming scenarios, that will start to show you where some of your real vulnerabilities are, disruptions to supply chains, changes to markets that you may not have otherwise been anticipating, technology appearing or failing to appear. And you can really start to factor that information from that scenario analysis exercise into your decision-making and really integrate it with your core strategy so that you're able to you know, be in the best possible position, including relative to your competitors, which again is another good reason to get on this quickly because everybody's going to have to do it for one reason or another. But it really is a useful exercise to do whether you're required to or not, which is why we're seeing in New Zealand and in other places, public sector organizations, which have financial risks, but different ones from business are doing it because it is such a useful thing to do. It's so enlightening of an exercise to do. And so, yeah, I'd really encourage companies to do this as soon as they possibly can, because it's just such a helpful thing. I agree. Massive opportunity. So there's going to be massive wealth erosion and there's going to be massive wealth creation through the change. And I think it's fantastic advice to get going with this and start looking at and, and utilizing some of the frameworks that are being developed now to help understand these risks. So Matt, as we draw to a close, I guess you're an absolute expert in this area. Are there any key recommendations you've got just to, for our clients who are wanting to understand more about this and what they should be doing? Really just trying to go into this with a positive outlook and think about where you are now and where you want to be, because this is an opportunity for some people it might be an excuse to really transform their organizations into something that can really stand the test of time leave a legacy, continue to serve customers and markets. There's a reason that Michael Bloomberg and other very wealthy people are interested in this. There's a lot of money to be made by being, you know, this is maybe a bit coarse, but basically there will be winners and losers in this whole shift to a completely different, resilient, low emissions economy. But there's so much of an opportunity there that it's really important to try to seize it as quickly as you can, because this is all going to move very, very quickly. We're already a couple years now into that first decade of what is generally thought of as this 30-year transition to this net zero emissions economy. And New Zealand has lots of policy changes coming. There's lots of global policy changes coming. This is going to move very, very quickly. In a few years, it's just going to be the way that it is. And do you want to get ahead of that? and really position yourself to be you know, one of those winners, or do you want to take your chances? And I'd really, really encourage companies to take their chances and have an opportunity to tell their stories the way that they want to tell them on their own terms, instead of having those stories told about them and for them. That's great advice. Hey, Matt, I just want to thank you very much for coming along and sharing your insights today with me and the audience. Thanks, Amish. Hey, uh, thanks to our listeners as well for joining us. I look forward to bringing you another episode of F&B Soundbites. Until then, as we say in New Zealand, hiya and farewell. <laughs>